This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today's Thursday, October 12th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. Let's see, we've got some news on the docket. A lot of listener feedback um, about our segment on Spotify's audiobook 15-hour credit situation. The Australians, let me tell you, Rebecca, they came out for us. They showed up. They showed out. They sent feedback. We love it. Love an Australian. Really, I'm really helpful. Um, really interesting to see. We, I mean, the truth is we don't have a huge show. It's not like a, a giant audience, but it's it's pretty good size. But it only takes a few, right, in all these places mm-hmm. around the world. Um, Google Analytics 4, this is real inside baseball, uh, unveiled this feature <laughs> as part of their total crap-tastic rollout of this. but Oh, oh the only good feature of the, the new only, Google The Analytics. only good feature is you get this, like, world map, and it shows you where people are visiting the site from, like, you know, more than five or ten or some threshold. And you can see it kind of go as the day goes on, of, like, Europe starting, and then they go to bed, and then the U.S. waking up. But I always, when I'm getting ready to go to bed, I can see the Aussies and the New Zealanders um, start to wake up. So thank you all so much for, for writing in, I and that. I hope you're... Uh, readings. We'll get into that in a little bit. Programming notes. Uh, let's see. So we're going to record a Patreon tomorrow that'll go up next week in which we tackle the Vaster Wilds and Going Infinite by Michael Lewis, which has been the subject of our crosstalk. We've even got some collateral damage in our conversations this week at work about Going Infinite <laughs> and everything that's going on there. And that was going to be a three-headed hydra with Let Us Descend, but as um, Rebecca Colombo, I think we're going to get Let Us Descend as an Oprah pick because it's been moved to October 24th. We are going to mm-hmm. do a dedicated episode to that on first edition. The It books of October are out. Coming up next week, Dan Sinekin, whose new book came out this week, Big Fiction, about conglomeration in the publishing industry. I got that. I interviewed him a couple weeks ago, but the book is out now, and that'll be on first edition next week. So check that out. We write today in books. Uh, I wrote a deep dive this week. Maybe we can talk about this. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it about I did. what is an author-centered publishing industry look like, which was mostly for an excuse for me to revisit one of my favorite episodes of TV all time, which is <laughs> um, uh, Sit Down, Shut the Door from episode 20. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. It's the last episode of ep- uh, season three of Mad Men. Um, but that was inspired by Dan Sinekin's book and some of my conversation with him. So check that out. And I think with that, let's do our first sponsor break, and we'll get into listener feedback and the rest of what's going on. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high-stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. 
And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay, well... Before we get into yeah. listener feedback, I do need to just put a pin in. At some point, we need to talk about why you're looking at Google Analytics right before you go to bed. Oh, not before I go to bed. Just at night, at the end okay. of the day. So All at right. the end of the day. Okay. No, no, not before I go to bed. <laughs> it's like Jeff. Jeff. We got to talk about sleep hygiene. Well, I actually have uh, a projector on the back of my eyeballs with this chip that Elon helped me out with. Listen. He took out of a monkey and put it in me just so I can see when um, Auckland was waking up and starting to read uh, yeah, book right. You know, I am on tap for our deep dive newsletter next week, yeah. and I'm looking at 12 things we've learned in 12 years of running Book yes. Riot. And like, I-, I wouldn't be surprised if the Jeff of 12 years ago basically did have Google Analytics projected Absolutely onto did. the inside of his eyeballs. One thing I needed to have, I don't have tattoos, but I have um, mental tattoos. They're called memories, uh, is having a moment of realization, that's a great show title, by the way, of looking at stats <laughs> is not work. Because it feels like work, right? It feels like it you're doing something, but you're ac- you're actually not. This is the show. This isn't just an aside. We're actually recording this. People will hear this, Rebecca. Just so we know, you know, that's what <laughs> this right, is. Let's right? Let's do some. We'll do some listener feedback. Yeah. yeah, you know, the people listening to this show, they're also concerned for your well-being. That's right. They want you to sleep. Maybe a little less mine analytics. than yours, but that's okay. That, that's fine. <laughs> um, Why don't you take this first Patreon- one? Yeah. 
Yeah, one of our Patreon members, let us, uh, who is from Australia, let us know that the Spotify audiobooks are good. This was one of our yeah. big points of speculation last week. Like, will it have front list or will this be mostly backlist stuff? And at least in Australia, they say the availability seems great. They won't be surprised if Britney's memoir is available when it's released. It has all the big titles right now, Lessons in Chemistry, Spare, Atomic Habits, Yellow Face. And they did note that there will probably be differences between the countries yeah. because Australian libraries have rights issues with books that are available through U.S. libraries but not available here. I mean, often books that get published in the U.S. have different publishers in Australia and the U.K. and around the world, so that's not surprising. But this is very encouraging to me. 15 hours a month is like right in my mm-hmm. audiobook listening zone. That's one long book or two average to short ones. Mm-hmm. And if that happens and they're good and it's front list, Spotify is going to get me. Yeah, so I'm, I appreciate I'm going to pull a Michael Lewis and Moneyball and create an amalgam of a listener uh, in all of the feedback. The general sense seems to me that my query wondering, wondering about is 15 hours enough for people to give up Audible because probably the most common Audible subscription is one audiobook. Now, again, there could be a little um, stacking of the deck because people heard me say that. And like, yes, actually, I don't know if they actually would. But a lot of people are saying, looking at the catalog, that there's probably something there they could find. I've got so many. I am genuinely surprised by the front listiness of what me we're too. seeing here. Um, if this is if this is going to be true for the U.S. If Australians is yeah, what you I get because it's, it's not as well... Um, marshaled as the American or or the UK or Canadian audiences, great for you. But if within the last year, bestsellers are on this, I'm generally surprised, Rebecca. I just am. Mm -hmm. I am. I'm genuinely surprised by it, too. And one thing that I don't think we talked about when we talked about the story last week was that once you've run through your 15 hours of time, you don't have to buy the extra audiobook. You don't have to deal with the one-off bananas audiobook Mm. pricing. You buy additional listening time in chunks of 10 hours. So For six bucks? Someone did a screen cap. I think it was six bucks or something like that. Yeah. So you could do, you know, a big 25 hour audiobook, which is a thing that Bob does a lot mm-hmm. in our household, big sci fi, you know, epic situations. But then you're paying six bucks. If you think about that as like amortized across all 25 hours of your listening, you spent six dollars this month to to listen to everything you wanted to listen to. It That still beats the audible monthly credit system by a lot. Very surprised to see this. I, what is Spotify paying for this because my, I don't know what it's your Spotify is but I've got like the family premium yeah. plus thing and it's like 20-ish dollars 22 they changed the price maybe it's up to 25 mm-hmm. now my audible one credit per month I, I, I think I told you this audible hit me with the I'd gone to Libby and then I'd gone to um, Libro.fm just to get away from Audible. And I think in part of their re-engagement drip campaign, they kept trying mm-hmm. increasingly attractive offers. And they finally <laughs> hit me with one of 24 credits for $7 each. I'm like, hell yeah, I bought that. So I've been burning through those. But if you're on a one credit per month, I think you're looking at fourteen ninety five ish per book. Mm-hmm. Now, again, right. that you could churn out yourself into 90 hours of audiobook at that if you wanted to. But I don't get what – it feels like you could be upside down on this. Now, again, probably most Spotify listeners will not use this. Maybe that's part of it. But for anyone that listens to Lesson in Chemistry on Spotify, 
and they've got to kick even that $7 from Audible over, that's a big chunk of their revenue it's, from that listener for a month. I'm very surprised by that. Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting because you know, even though Oyster RIP, yeah. which for folks who were newer around here was a startup all you can read, mm-hmm. like quote unquote Netflix for ebooks several years ago, early 2010s. Um, they couldn't get big licensing deals with any of the big publishers because the publishers did not want to wade into these waters. They had a lot of backlist, and Oyster and then Scribd had the same problem later on it's the power readers that really killed those because like most people were paying their monthly fee and they were reading one book or less than one book but especially romance readers were the ones that like were just they read so much and romance readers are especially concentrated in ebook reading that the folks who were reading a lot were reading a lot and oyster couldn't stay right side up in profitability and keep doing it so i think there are i really have some questions here about like what does the power audiobook listener look like relative to what those power ebook readers looked like and how does that use eat into mm-hmm. whatever Spotify is doing here. Um, I suspect that you, like your average power audiobook listener is still not listening to as many audiobooks in a month as a power ebook romance yeah. reader is reading. Um, but it won't take much to tip it. I guess that's a nice lead into folks in the UK, authors in the UK have some questions and some thoughts <laughs> <laughs> about this. Um, the Society of Authors is a UK trade union for all types of writers and illustrators and translators, and they issued a statement this week expressing deep concern about the report that Spotify is offering these 15 hours, um, because as far as they are aware, no authors or agents were approached for permission for licenses. Authors haven't been consulted on the payment terms, and here's the interesting one. In fact, it's likely that streaming was not a use that had been invented when many of their contracts were entered into. So since streaming didn't exist when those contracts were created, is that a gray area where the publisher can do whatever they want? Do they need to go back and revisit it? Um, They're, I think, rightfully concerned about the same thing that happened in the music industry and the impact that streaming had on artists' incomes. Mm -hmm happening to writer's incomes, but we can put a a link to all of this uh, in the show notes. And it'll be, I think, interesting to see how UK publishers respond to this. The Society of Authors is demanding some information from publishers about it. But notably, we don't have uh, an equivalent in the US. We have the Authors Guild, but we don't have a trade, we don't have a union um, for writers that really can advocate or approach anything that looks like collective bargaining. So that's going to be another open question. I mean, ask all the questions they want. I saw this. I was like, I'm sure you signed your audiobook rights to your publisher. And (laughs) Mm -hmm. is this that different than Audible? It doesn't seem to me that it is. Now, the royalty structure, if they've got some sweetheart deal with Spotify and the dollars don't flow back to the author, I certainly understand that. But a lot of times you've written, you have sold your audiobook rights and PRH. And like, there's the other thing we should say is there's multiple big five publishers here. Um, right. I didn't do a count, but Lessons in Chemistry is a PRH title. Yellowface is a HarperCollins title. So there's well, no. two right there I can see off the mm-hmm. top. Yeah, I, I would be really surprised if they're getting taken for a ride by Daniel X um, Swedish Calvary here. But it's a good <laughs> question to see. But I don't, I don't know if it's difference in spirit, uh, degree or kind. Then I can download or stream my Audible Audible audiobook versus I can download or stream my audiobook from 
from mm-hmm. Spotify. There might be some smoke here. I would be surprised if there's much of a fire, but they've got every right to ask for sure. And it's... It is interesting, especially because all of the big five in the U.S. have signed on to the Spotify deal. And of course, we don't know yet what that means in terms of how much of their front list Mm -hmm. will their big premiere titles be available inside this 15 hours of free listening. But I wonder also if publishers are doing some of the math of like, well, maybe we're going to capture listeners for these that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. If it's they're not going to pay to listen to it on Audible, but they might listen to it for free yeah. on Spotify, then you you can slowly build up. Audible is the Barnes and Noble, and Spotify things. here is the books at the end cap of Target, right? These are people here for mm-hmm. something else. And if they've heard of Lessons in Chemistry, if they've heard of Atomic Hammets or Spare, they, they are more likely to pick them up here because to sign up for an Audible subscription, you have to be an audiobook person, right? You're making a commitment unless you're going to pay $58 mm-hmm. for a one-off Audible audiobook of a David McCullough thing. Don't get me started on that. Um, <laughs> you know, you're already in the in the audiobook system. They want to pick up new listeners. Hey, while you've got your headphones mm-hmm. on, why don't you talk right. why don't you try this book that Brie Larson is now starring in that's coming out tomorrow? Are you watching this? Are we going to do a segment on this? Do we need to talk about this? Is this behind the scenes? I, I have not planned no. a segment for it because it's it, I th- so much depends on whether it's good or not. Well, maybe we better um, watch the, one and we can tell people if it's good yeah, or not. Yeah, I was yeah. I was going to watch the first one yeah. over the weekend because the first one comes out tomorrow on October 13th as we're recording. So I'm going to watch the first one over the weekend. Let's reconvene next week yep. and see if this is a thing that we want to talk is about. Because as a we don't, if it's terrible, we typically don't like to come on and just bag on something. Now, exceptions right. can be made because anyone in this is getting a bag already, so they don't need to. They don't need to worry. Brie Larson's going to be fine. Uh, Lewis Pullman, yeah. you know, his dad's Bill Pullman, so it, it, it's going to be cool. <laughs> Apple, I think, yeah, is going to be okay. okay. Um, well, anyway, but people are going to hear about this, right? And Spare is a huge hit. Yes. And Atomic Habits is a TikTok phenomenon and has been around for a while. So. I don't know. It seemed, you know, a couple people that wrote in said it seems like the catalog is pretty deep and said, you know, this could, mm-hmm. for a certain kind of listener, this could be their audiobook listing. Now, if you're the kind of audiobook listener that you want to be able to pick out an arbitrary audiobook that's available, that's probably not going to work for you because not everything's going to be here and some things are longer than 15 hours. I don't think you can get around the 15 hours by listening on one and a half times speed, which someone was wondering about. I thought that was pretty hilarious. Oh, that's uh, clever. Very I clever. Thought of that. Um, <laughs> I'd love to know the negotiation around the 15 hour. Like, wh- how did they come up? Why 15 hours? Right. Is it is it in some sweet spot where like you can get one and a half books, but you're going to have to buy the extra time? 15 hours is the pretty long book? audiobook. So I'm listening to Making <laughs> yeah. It So by Patrick Stewart, and it's like 484 pages in print. And I think that comes out to be like 17 and a half hours of 1x speed audio. Yeah. That's on the long I side, started- I think. Right. I started The Man of Two Faces by Viet right. Thanh Nguyen, and it's like eight and a half hours, and yeah. I think it's about an average print-length book, yeah. 380, maybe 400. Um, yeah, 15 hours is a lot of audio. It's like maybe they thought it's one and a half. You do one, and then they get you with the yeah. second one. Right. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. That's what I was guessing. Yeah. Is you can get one and a half in there, and then if you want to finish your second book, you've got to pony up right. for the 10. But that's like... That is a lot of book consumption. The average U.S. reader is somewhere between like five and 12 books Mm -hmm. per year. Um, So this is more than enough for someone who even is an average reader doing exclusively audio. I wonder if it's also an, uh, an attempt to shore up a softening in the podcast market, podcasts in general, a great point. are struggling 
and Spotify had paid a lot of money to get exclusive rights to yes. several big shows that those those creators, uh, to my knowledge, maybe Joe Rogan is the only one who has stayed exclusive. Like, That's have not re I don't know. I think Rogan, and he brought his own audience, right? Like, that was part of the deal. They were buying right. the show there and so much as they buy an audience, but... Yeah, like, hmm. Armchair Expert went to Spotify, but is now going back to hmm. wider distribution. The Obamas are no longer exclusive to Spotify. Yeah. Those are the big ones I know of. Um, Brene Brown is not exclusive to Spotify anymore. Um, if we want to do podcast just- industry corner for a second while we're on it, did you see that Pushkin, our beloved Pushkin, who we admire, their audiobook productions, they cut 30% of their staff. Um, oh, I didn't late. see yeah, that. And um, WNYC, which is the the New York City um, uh, public radio company, I guess. I don't really understand how these things are mm-hmm. incorporated. But anyway... They make a lot of the radio shows and podcasts that you know, but they're basically getting rid of all podcast-only programming. Mm-hmm. They're only going to make podcasts that go over the air as well. So there's there's some shows that you, people have heard of. Uh, Death, Sex, and Money is one of them. More Perfect, which is the Radio Lab spinoff about the Supreme Court. Those are all gone. Um, yeah. Podcasts are hard to grow. They just are. They are. They are hard and to grow. I wonder, too, how much some of it is the... You know, coming out of having to overcorrect or like overproduce during COVID yeah. because demand was so high when everybody was at home and audiobook listenership went way up, mm-hmm. podcast listenership went way up. If you're a big production company, maybe you staffed up and produced more things during that time. And now that folks are pretty much back out in the world living their lives and have regressed to, I think they're more closer to their pre COVID averages yeah. of audio listenership, you're on a different like part of the supply demand vector than we were a few years ago. And that's a, that's a tough spot to be in, but podcasting in general, it's, it is, this is tough. It's tough to start it. It's tough to grow it. The other thing about 15 hours of a month on audiobook that I hadn't really considered is that's time you're not spending listening to music, which they have to pay licensing for. Mm-hmm. So they did, they do get a little bit of coupon back though. It's, it's famously pennies, but yeah. you know, if, if audible can sell me credits for $7, some part of that Audible is keeping. Like, what is the publisher actually getting for my seven? I have no idea about this. So maybe it's a few bucks per 15-hour unit is all Spotify ends up mm-hmm. paying. And if mm-hmm. that helps at all with retention, it could be well, well worth it. If you're a birdie in publishing and you know what the deal is between Spotify and one of the publishers, we would be happy to keep you anonymous. Yes. <laughs> We would. Podcast at bookriot.com. What are, what are those things that that real journalists do, like Signal, like this encrypted crap you can oh, put in yeah. whatever? Uh-huh, Maybe we should get one of those so people can tell us <laughs> secrets. Um, one other bit, or two other bits of listener feedback. It was revealed a few days ago that this mystery November 7th, Rebecca Yarrow's title was indeed a super fancy new edition of Fourth oh, Wing. Oh, okay. It's, it's Spreges Plus. We've got embossed covers, uh, mm. all kinds of stuff for for. For people there, I didn't see the print run. I didn't go look it up in Edelweiss, but uh, in anticipation, I guess it's actually maybe same day as the as um, Iron Flame, but is a special edition of Fourth Wing, which last week, let me say, is still the number one best selling adult fiction title in North America. Um, let's see elsewhere. Had someone write in about awards. And they okay. want to be kept anonymous because they served on the jury of a regional book award. And they said they really enjoyed the experience, but it's kind of 
kind of how we described it. It's a few people and they mm-hmm. go back and forth. And this person said that they enjoyed the process and it wasn't acrimonious. Um, my impression was that if someone really dug their heels in, they could blackball something. Like it wasn't a democracy mm-hmm. necessarily. Didn't have that experience. But again, kind of like we said about the National Book Awards, it's, it's, four, it's four people on a Zoom, five people on a Zoom. And they read a lot, but it's five people yeah. on a Zoom. And um, had a couple people to, to write in nicely, I think. I always like it when people agree with me that they agreed with our take <laughs> about the National Book Award of like, can we use a little of the shine to grow um, and spotlight? Um, I think I'll do a deep dive about if I were in charge of the National Book Award, what I'd do. My, my major thing is I need more categories. Give me a debut category. Give me a mystery thriller category. Give me a romance category. Let, 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 I don't need to go full Goodreads or book Barnes & Noble. There's 50, but we could do 10 or 12 awards here. We, we could do it. We have yeah. the technology. More categories and more people voting. Yeah. I really like your idea of a book equivalent of the Academy. Yeah. And I was thinking about it this morning. I was listening to The Big Picture, which mm. we both appreciate yes. a lot. Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins talk about movies every week. And they're you know, we're rolling into Oscar speculation season. And they were talking about the Oscars and doing some interesting like, okay, this was a great movie, but do you think the Academy is going to vote for this movie? And I was like, oh, I just want to be able to have that kind yeah. of conversation. We cannot do that because it's so because Predictable. We have no idea. Right? It's like we, have no idea. we don't. You, we you usually don't even know who the judges no. of these things are until the prize is announced. So we can't even get into like this was a great mm. book, but do we think that this MFA teacher that we've never heard of, who had a book of short stories four years ago, is going to vote for? <laughs> Like, it's just, it's just impossible. It's not serving, we're not serving readers the way that I think awards should be. I will look forward to reading your treatise. I don't think it's that complicated. I think we just did it. I'm going to have to scrape 1,200 words out of that four minute segment we just did. Not even four. (laughs) Well, (laughs) feel free to take some of last week's segment and tack on a like, what are book awards even for? Right, right, right. Speaking of, I didn't put this in here, but the Kirkus Prize came out, a 50K. Yes. um, And... Good job, us, Rebecca. James McBride. James McBride, mm-hmm. Heaven Earth Grocery Store. I know from having talked to him, he will be embarrassed. Not embarrassedly, but like he's genuinely grateful. You know, like he said in the if you listen on first edition that I got my fifteen mm-hmm. minutes. You know, I'm just kind of keep right. I hope someone else can do this. I don't know what kind of expectation he had for this at all, but fifty grand. Kirkus, it's interesting. They they did we have an idea at one point to go look at like the last ten years of all the major book awards and say who's who's doing it? In our image, which one would we agree mm, with? Yeah, I kind of mm-hmm. feel like Kirkus is maybe on. I would maybe guess they would do pretty well for what we kind of want to do. Heaven Earth Grocery Store moving very well, continues to be in the top twenty um, best-selling novels um, of the year. So that that was awesome to see. Yeah, I was delighted to see that. I wrote up a little piece about it for this morning's Today oh, in Books. And one of yet. the things that was mentioned in that piece is that the three books that won were considered alongside the nearly 11,000 other titles that were featured in Kirkus Reviews <laughs> this year. 11,000, Jeff. And here's the so thing. They don't just... publish negative reviews. So that's just the good ones. No. <laughs> So if we just back up to the median reader is taking down five books a year. Take them a thousand years to get through all the novels. 2,200 years worth of reading material coming out this year. There are too many books. Typical American reader. There are too many books. But the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store is not one of the extras. It should stay. Uh, Let's do a sponsor break. And we've got book deal news to talk about a couple one that's on the agenda and a couple that i don't think made it on yet but we'll get to oh okay great 
This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by KT Hoffman. The pressure cooker of minor league baseball leads to major chemistry in this exhilarating, sexy, and triumphant Rivals to Lovers debut romance. Gene Ionescu is the first openly trans player in professional baseball. He has nearly everything he's ever let himself dream of. That is, until Luis Estrada, Gene's former teammate and current rival, gets traded to the Beavers. Now, Gene and Louise can't manage a civil conversation off the field or a competent play on it, but in the close confines of dugout benches and roadie buses, they begrudgingly rediscover a comfortable rhythm. As the two grow closer, the tension between them turns electric and their chemistry spills past the confines of the stadium. So this is one of the first adult rom-coms published by a major publishing house centering a gay trans man by a gay trans man. It also has ADHD and anxiety representation and some joyful, heartfelt moments. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by KT Hoffman for sponsoring this episode. Um, I'm going to do some frantic Googling. Why don't you take up the one that's in the uh, in the document? <laughs> All right. Well, we, um, I think, had speculated about this. We'd heard some hinting about it, but it is official now that Salman Rushdie, who was stabbed last year uh, at an event in uh, Chautauqua, New York, uh, is writing a memoir about it. It's coming out April 16th. So he has... I mean, bounced back from this experience and processed it very quickly, I think, kind of remarkably so. The book is called Knife, Meditations After an Attempted Murder. And he says that for him, this was a necessary book to write. It was a way to take charge of what happened and to answer violence with art. Um, New York Times has a great piece on this by Elizabeth Harris. This is one of the more stunning book covers oh I think I've ever God. seen. It's amazing. Like, really incredible work. It's, it just looks fantastic. Um, Rushdie is sadly really no stranger to violence in response to his work, you know, very famously lived under a fatwa and in hiding for a decade uh, after the Ayatollah in Iran issued the fatwa for uh, on him, for him, against him uh, in response to uh, the satanic verses. And here he is again, uh, experiencing violence as a response to his work. Nobody owes us no. turning their traumatic experiences into activism or art. Um, he has done both and very consistently and repeatedly. It's I think remarkable is a word I think I'm just going to come yeah. back to over and over. This promises to be bracing and 
Rushdie's processing of something like this will almost certainly situate it beyond his personal experience and in a much larger socio-political context, which, you know, right now we are in a moment where mm-hmm. people are threatening violence because of the content of books. Um, we're in a really difficult global political situation, and uh, th- his is a voice that's so valuable Um I feel very much like we should never have expected or we couldn't have asked him to write this book and we're very lucky that we're going to get it. When I saw the cover, I I, I did do a little... Um, uh, it took my breath away a little bit. I did a little... Mm-hmm. Um, just that it, yeah. A, that it's existing. Because as you say, I can imagine that... I don't know what kind of condition he's in to write. I mean, he's a consummate writer, so whatever he's got, I'm sure, was yeah. he was trying to turn towards doing something. Um, but the cover is, is is really stunning, and I don't say that lightly. It mm-hmm. doesn't look like anything I've seen before. Um, do yourself a favor, and I'll put a link in the show notes, as always. But, yeah, can't imagine um, what that's going to be like. And there was a story that I didn't put in the agenda today, and it relates to Britney Spears' memoirs audiobook. Oh, Did you yeah. see this, where apparently some of it... I did. There's going to be... she's Britney's going to narrate a bunch of it, but some of the more trying passages, apparently, someone else is going to narrate. Which is fascinating to me. It is. Uh, it's r- really interesting. And I, it hadn't occurred to me, no. you know, when we were speculating about will Britney read this herself or will it be an actor? Like, we, I was really hoping it would be Britney because I'm all in <laughs> for Britney. <laughs> this makes so much sense so to me, though, sense. like just from the perspective of, you know, having to relive a traumatic experience by writing about it or speaking with a co-writer about it would have been difficult enough, but then to sit down and have to record yourself vocalizing that I think would add a layer of difficulty. Um, I just came off of listening to Jill Duggar's audiobook, and she talks about some of her personal traumatic experiences and you can hear it like catch in her voice. And she acknowledges that even like dredging the stories up to talk with the co-writer that she had was just terribly difficult. Um, I think this is really smart and I would be, I'm curious about how it came about because we have no shortage of books like this, no. of stories that are difficult to tell, of memoirs that are important and difficult to tell. And this seems like a really thoughtful, sensitive move by whoever had the idea yeah. of like, you know what? You don't You've have done to enough. Do this. Yeah. You don't need to go through that part. It's really interesting. We've, we've talked often when we talk about audiobooks, especially ones that we share and cherish. We mm-hmm. do talk about moments where it's obvious in the narration that they're having an emo- emotional response to their own words yeah. and their own experience. Now, I I hadn't really ever investigated that response of mine. Me neither. I think yeah. usually I would respond to it better if it is they are overcome by nostalgia or emotion of a positive kind or memory, certainly not when they've undergone something terrible, but I think it makes a, a ton of sense. I have, I've not, this is not a joke when I've wondered about Brittany's ability to be in the limelight around this book. And this is the kind of thing one does or one or someone around you thinks about. Maybe you should do it all the time, but especially in a brittle, fraught, emotionally yeah, charged, to put know, it mildly, it's, situation. It's in the conversation, like in the social conversation around victims having to go to court yeah. and testify yeah. about crimes that have been committed against them and how that can be re-traumatizing. But it makes sense that having to retell the story for an audiobook would be mm-hmm. a similar kind of revisiting the trauma. And man, this, it's a, this is a good idea. Good idea. Good job. Uh, how do we get on? Oh, Rushdie Spears. Okay, the other one, this is a news piece today. It came out that... 
Casey McQuiston um, announced mm, a new book coming next year. Uh, Casey describes it, uh, the slug line as sluts in Europe, um, which is funny. <laughs> the actual title is right. called The Pairing. Sold. Yeah. So here's a... The author slugline: Two gloriously slutty bisexual exes having a transformational three-week reunion tour through France, Spain, and Italy. So it's a land of milk and honey and getting some is what it sounds like to me here. That's going to go on. Looking forward to the Amazon series yeah. of this. I mean, I just saw Bottoms a couple of weeks ago, and nothing is going to be a fever dream quite like that. Yep. But this, this sounds excellent. And then the the third in our very kind of odd threesome of, of books news is um <laughs> word choice there my fraught, friend <laughs> fraught uh is uh tj clune announced that mm. he's writing a sequel to the house on cerulean sea which is a i guess now something be a between deal. a cult favorite and a bona fide hit um and people have been waiting for this he's he's written the lives of puppets came out i don't think that sold very well um and he had been resistant to writing a sequel. Who knows? Things change, especially if you think you can sell a million copies of them. It's it's motivated reasoning. I'm not begrudging it. I've just there'd been a lot of. He, I think he had said he wasn't going to write a sequel. It's a little hard mm-hmm. to imagine, frankly, what the sequel would do. You have to create some new tension, other things. But having said that, I will be listening to this with my family in a car trip in the summer of 2024. I guarantee you Lovely. that. So three really um, exciting, and I think I. I may or may not read the McQuiston. Depends on what Michelle says. I know she will read it. There. <laughs> I am having such a hard time picturing you like settling in on a Saturday evening with your like homemade home roasted coffee to read Sluts in Europe. But I'm delighted. Well, if my blood gets too up, I just glance over at Google <laughs> Analytics and I call. You know, it brings it all the way down. It's it's it kind of like uppers and downers. What are they doing over there? Yeah, in that's right. Are they up? Are they up in Bangalore yet? We got to see what's going on to make sure they're reading about book news. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Let's do one more sponsor break and then let's do frontless foyer. What do you think? What yeah, do you say? Sounds good. I'm ready. Okay, Rebecca, what have you been reading? I have been reading. I'm not done yet, but I'm done enough to feel good about talking about it. Extremely online by Taylor Lawrence. Okay. Which I know, I know you've had some questions yeah. about it. Uh, is a it is a social history of social media. Um, that's a phrase directly from her introduction to it. I think that's the right way to put it. And it's like it's doing a really great job of filling in the gaps and just, it hits the high points of like what were the big uh, first blogging platforms and then social media platforms, who first went viral on them, how did the early users shape those communities, and sort of how did one community feed into the shape of the next one. Um, and I knew a good chunk of these stories, but also am surprised by the stuff that I didn't know, like that YouTube launched originally as a video dating I mean, service. why not? Let's start everything. Everything that you and I have ever used <laughs> has started out as a da- dating service, right? And that, and that it wasn't, it was going so poorly that the founders of YouTube back in like 2006 were offering women 20 bucks if you would please, for the love of God, make a profile and put it up on YouTube. And I'm sure that was worth like it for were, those young women. <laughs> right. I'm sure it went great. Yeah, yeah. They were desperate, but they did notice that other people, like that users were using it for off-label stuff. They were just storing like home videos and doing other things. And eventually some people started vlogging and just talking about their lives. And rather than slap those users down because they were out of the terms of service, they decided to pay attention to how folks were actually using it. And then all of YouTube became 
what it is. And they were sort of the first product to really support creators and finding ways to monetize their stuff. Um, fascinating stories about like early Instagram influencers mm. and some early blogging stuff. And there are things where I was like, wow, this happened in 2005. What was I doing that I didn't realize this was happening? It's like, oh, right, I was in grad school right. then. I wasn't a didn't professional even have an iPhone internet yet. person. I mean, we, didn't, we weren't carrying right. around The, the iPhones computers. didn't exist yet. Didn't exist, you know. Right. Um, it's, it's not, um, I don't know, it's not like a big, deep analysis because I don't think you can go that deep when you're being quite no. when you're being as broad as she is but you do hit the high points and and Lawrence is able to put together the pieces of um here are some of the through lines that have happened in all of these spaces or consistent patterns of use consistent ways that community transforms into commodity um it's really interesting and it's, it's it's so readable like that's you know I'm I'm just reading it but I think it would probably be great on audio I don't know that it's a book I'm gonna like think about a ton when it's over yeah um, but it is really filling in some gaps in my knowledge and mental model of internet history so that's what I've been reading okay. what about you um, get ready to be blown away because this week I read okay. two collections of short stories sound Ooh, the alarms okay. toll the bells this is very Jeff unusual. Jeff O'Neill read two collections of short <laughs> stories. One was predictable because I did finish this morning uh, Roman stories by one Jumbo Lahiri, mm. which and? was great. I mean, okay. I, I can get rid of all my what is she doing, translating herself back and forth into English and Italian and getting into the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles about going back and forth. I, I guess I don't care enough. Um, okay. These are so all, I've got to go pick it up is what uh, you're well, saying. Well, I guess here... I, I think you would. I think you would I'd like it. It's so controlled. It's very, very small in this regard. It's it's a slim volume, and it's also a smaller size. Um, mm. It's only hundred. It's only two hundred four pages, even in the smaller size. So you, you go through it pretty quickly. They're all set in Rome, and in classic short story fashion, there's sort of little slices of life that have a spark in the middle of them, or a Someone steps on a trap or something happens that's sharp, that turns the story. And the first one, I think, is indicative. Um, it's told from the point of view of a, of a young girl, I'd say a tween or so, who lives with her father. And they manage what I think is just a rental property for people to come stay outside of Rome. And she watches for the whole week a family um, you know, a mom and a dad and two kids and very sort of prototypical upper middle class Roman tourists. I don't know if these are Italians or it kind of doesn't matter, but they're there for a week with all their vacation crap. And she watches them for, for the week. Mm. And the sting, and I'll spoil this first one because I think it's indicative. It's not really a spoiler. It's hard to spoil these. The stinger at the end, the very last sentence is the woman, the mom, wife leaves behind her book. And she, the the girl discovers that the woman had been writing about her the whole time the family in this situation but it shows you that as a tourist the people you're staying around with that are taking you are also real people and they have lives Mm -hmm. and they're watching and they're learning and they have their own hopes and dreams and thwarted fantasies and um opinions and that little just discovering that the the visitor was writing about her helps the reader discover that they don't think about the people, the mm-hmm. hotel maid, or you know, the person who has the keys to your Airbnb, or who you know does your laundry when you leave, and there's a lot of moments like that, and there's there's usually one oh, little lovely. one little flutter of an interaction, 
someone in, in one of the stories, someone kisses someone's shoulder in full view of everyone else, and it just you know things happen. One girl doesn't get out of the way of someone at a restaurant, and it has consequence. Um, but it's very still in its own way. It is not beautiful writing, except that it does have that that quality of like old building marble. It's like it's not beautiful, Ooh. but it's solid and. Okay. It's interesting without being super adorned. It's really great. It's, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Um, th- there's one There's one of them, and some of them have multiple parts. I don't even know what you'd call these, some of these little short stories. But one is just she tells the story of several people's relationships to a set of stairs. Fascinating. This is such a cool conceit. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, style. yeah. That's why yeah, I say you like great. it. So anyway, yeah. so that one was uh, absolutely a home run. Um I went to Powell's, had a little special trip down to Powell's so I could pick it out and, and, and buy it and bring it back and start reading it in the sunshine, the dwindling sunshine here in Portland. The other one I read is Company, um, collection of short stories oh, by I've had my Shannon Sanders. That. It's a debut collection. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I read some stuff. I like this idea. It's, um, it's her debut. It's about a upwardly mobile black family in and around Washington, D.C., predominantly. And each story is about a coming and going. Someone's arriving, someone's departing. There's a party. There's someone's moving around. There's well, a like birth. Like companies a, coming. Yeah, you got company. Okay. But it's it takes these little moments, and it's this kind of wider Collins universe. They get people yeah, coming and going and visiting, and it's the holidays. They're moving out. They're moving in. Um, coming to move mom's stuff out. Coming to move you know sister in law stuff in. I thought it was really good. I thought the first couple of short stories, especially in the middle, I was starting to lose the threads of who. How, now, how is this story related to the ones that came before? Mm. And maybe that didn't matter as much. But I got through it really great. I'll, I'll be watching Sanders um, into the future. I enjoyed them both. I I do like short stories. I just am reticent to pick them up for whatever reason. So and this one caught my eye. I'm like giving a debut author a try, which I like to do. And then Lahiri is one of mine, you know, one of my, Oh yeah. you know, if we ever do our 20 authors that you have to save from, um, you can only remember <laughs> these 20 authors that you've read. I think Lahiri is mm-hmm. in the mix to be part of that. Mm. Uh, and I think oh, I finished Going Infinite, but I'll hold that. I'm still making my way through Making It oh, So yeah. by Patrick Stewart, which needs to be about 100 pages shorter. I'm enjoying it. The narration's wonderful. There's a little too much detail. Maybe I'm not a big enough Stewart mm-hmm. head, um, a Picardian, but... <laughs> I think I could have done with 384 pages versus 484 pages. 385 should be plenty for most people. I wonder if he got that thing where the editors are just not making you take stuff out when you're famous and maybe they should. Yeah, I think if you're the kind of person, maybe I'm a marginal case for a Patrick Stewart biography. Maybe the people that pick this up want all that stuff. And I'm like, Mm. I'm more of a reader and less of a Patrick Stewart person, if that makes sense. It's true. Yeah, it does. You know going to do that so that's what that's what's up with me i think that's our show yeah we'll have lots more to say about going infinite on the patreon there (laughs) uh yeah rebecca cannot wait show notes at bookriot.com slash listen slash listen the book riot podcast patreon on patreon.com slash book riot podcast shoot an email podcast at bookriot.com especially if you're in the rights department of spotify yes or a publisher Tell us your secrets. We'll keep them. Has this ever worked where someone's like, well, here's the revenue split they get with Oyster. (laughs) This has never worked. No, but we get some good adjacent tips. No, we do. We do. We do. But we never get the thing we want, which is the actual dollars transact. I imagine people probably don't want to violate their NDAs to call into a You mean in return for absolutely nothing? They don't want to do that? (laughs) 
where they get nothing back. Can't even get name recognition. That's right. That's right. Because the one we're still waiting on is how much do they pay Rosamund Pike to narrate a Jane Austen novel? (laughs) How much did Rodario Gossin get for Artemis? Or um, Meryl Streep narrating the new Anne Patchett. Or Tom Hanks narrated the Meryl Streep. Tom Hanks did that as a favor, we learned, or like they're friends? They're friends, yeah. You think he works for Patchett for free? They're going to get Hanks I in a Studio City thing so. for a day and he's getting bupkis no, from I think HarperCollins? They got Tom Hanks because he's friends with yeah. Ann Patchett, but I'm going to assume he worked for scale? that he got paid. I don't know. Does scale apply to audiobook production? I, so you can't ask me any follow-up questions because I don't know anything. That's so unfair of you. <laughs> Just got to take my moments. Yeah. All right. Thanks all so much for listening. Rebecca, we'll talk to you later. 